0: 20 years ago, when I was writing my first book on business strategy, I came across a text called Hyper Competition by Richard Devaney. His ideas of how to compete in a world typified by short-term advantages were really influential for me, and they predicted the nature of the fast-paced competition so many industries are dealing with now, especially as digital technologies take hold. When I ran into him last year at the Thinker's 50 Award Ceremony, I seized the opportunity to connect with him, and finally, we get him on this podcast. Professor Devaney is the Bacala Professor of Strategy at Dartmouth Tuck School of Business. He's considered one of the premier competitive strategists of his time. His research looks for the winning competitive strategies used by corporations, governments, and militaries. He writes regularly for Harvard Business Review and Forbes and is a frequent commentator on strategic and technological developments. Fortune Magazine has described Professor Devaney as modern-day Sun Tzu, the ancient Chinese master of the strategic arts. Marketing News says, today's internet marketers worship at the competitive altar of Devaney. His most recent book, The Pan-Industrial Revolution, examines the impact of 3D printing on manufacturing, global competition, and society. His most prominent book, Hyper-Competition, the one that I came across 20 years ago, available in 14 languages, discusses how rapid, fierce competition changes rules of strategy. Thinkers 50 awarded him its 2017 Strategy Award and nominated him for the 2019 Breakthrough Ideas Award. He has since been inducted into the Thinkers 50 Hall of Fame along with Peter Drucker, Clay Christensen, and many other groundbreaking innovators. His diverse background includes a PhD from Columbia University and a bachelor's degree from Cornell University, as well as a law degree and an MBA, bringing a unique perspective into business. In this episode, he shows us the link between modern strategy and its historical roots. He outlines why 3D printing is going to have far more profound implications for all businesses and industries than most of us appreciate, and introduces us to one of my favorite strategic concepts, hyper-competition. Ladies and gentlemen, Richard Devaney. All right, Richard, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us. Sure. Just to get us to know you a little bit personally, I'd like you to complete the sentence for me, if you don't mind. If you really know me, you know that.
1: Yeah, you know that I look for big ideas and counterintuitive ideas in particular that smash the current paradigms. And I get immense joy out of doing that and watching all the people squirm (laughs) 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 who are invested in the old strategy. At my heart, I'm still a rebel from the 1960s trying to shake up the system.
0: Got it. I've seen that from each of your books, and we're going to get this later, is each of your books, instead of building on one another, instead of all fitting in one category, each one is kind of like a reach into a future that has never been reached into before. Really fascinating. So I asked this question of all of our guests here, and I'm surprised I never get the same answer. What's your definition of strategy?
1: There's a lot of definitions of strategy. My particular one that I like is about actions that are undertaken and sequences of actions that are undertaken by firms that have major impact on their future. And that would include a kind of view of disruption and a view of the big picture revolution, you know, like Tesla is pursuing everything he touches. He is planning to blow up. And so my books were kind of the same. Hypercompetition was aimed at Porter and Porter Five Forces in particular, because it showed that Porter's model was useful for decreasing numbers of industries. How many oligopolies can you find nowadays, right? So it's a kind of anatomy lesson on an extinct animal. You know, if you look at 3D printing, basically the ideas with 3D printing are you have a non-specialized machine, shorter supply chains. You can work with lower economies of scale. In fact, they're very low because you have a $2 million machine. People jump up and down and declare victory that they've achieved the most that they can. But a year later, that $2 million machine is selling for 400000 So what I took aim at was the Henry Ford model of production and tried to identify how that would change strategy. Like increasing the ability to diversify or to enter new markets, increasing the ability to use local plants so you could outside of Boston build a single plant. That might make cars and ball bearings and five or six other things that don't seem related that were previously done in different factories, but because the volumes can be so low, you basically look for economies of scope. If you need to fill your capacity, then you fill it with more and more new products rather than filling it with trying to mass market
0: your same item. So we're winning with economies of scope over economies of scale, or the scale's already there. Got it. For those people who aren't as familiar with hyper-competition as I am, that was the original concept, and then since I've read all your other books, but just tell us a little bit if you could summarize that in a few sentences.
1: The basics of hyper-competition is that a hyper-competitive marketplace is rapid change, fast-paced, fierce competition, driving things down to zero margins over time, and a lot of uncertainty and chaos going on. You really can't have a sustainable competitive advantage there. I was thinking about this is how do you win with unsustainable advantages, short bursts of things that are worthwhile and that you can make money on and that if you progress fast enough, you make everybody else catch up with you. And just before it turns into zero margins, you jump to a new competitive advantage. It's very aggressive strategy. It's about mooting the strength or neutralizing the strength of a competitor. It is about rapid fire play that they might not be flexible enough to go after. It is about things like Sequencing your competitive advantages and a bunch of other things that I thought fit that environment of fast paced, ferocious items. And then I look back at it and I said, geez, you know, this says everything in Porter is backwards because what I'm talking about is being nice to your customers, nasty to your rivals and nice to your suppliers who are the people that you need to keep you going. Right. You're dependent on them. Then I looked at Porter and what Porter says is be nice to your rivals, oligopolistic bargain and reduce competition, never fight price wars, strength against weakness as opposed to overwhelming or obsoleting the strength of another player
0: capture as much margin from the customers you can.
1: Exactly. So it's not about lowering the price and servicing them. And then finally, with supply lines, it's about squeezing the margins out of them too. So we have one that says nasty, nasty, nice. And the other one says nice, nasty, nasty. They're exactly the opposite. And I thought about it. and I said, geez, I just crossed the U Rubicon. <laughs> right? And I'm going into a mirror, you know, mm-hmm. everything's the reverse of what we thought. And so I began a campaign that was based on the idea that hyper-competition was more relevant in today's world of fast change and technological leaps and industries converging. And how do you even know what your industry is anymore when industries converge like they have? So in the end, I decided that it was a completely different stakeholder model that was necessary. Strategic understanding had to be flipped on its head, and that threatened a lot of people. And unfortunately, it's one of those situations where nobody wanted it because it is harder to compete. On the other hand, it's better for the world.
0: Mm -hmm. Suppliers and customers and
1: innovating more and so forth. You know, life is about temporary advantages, not about sustainable advantages. Those days are gone with the 1950s and 60s. So that's hyper-competition in a nutshell.
0: Fascinating. It seems that your interest, and you know, I we get to 3D printing. I could see that kind of what you laid out about 3D printing and where it could lead can even kind of accelerate the need for hyper competition. So let me just start off asking. A lot of people think about 3D printing as there's a printer that's printing some plastic that prints small things that are too costly to ship. What do people get wrong when they think of 3D printing?
1: Yeah, there's a number of misconceptions. First, that you can't get quality. You can. It just takes knowledge to do that. Now, it's not that simple, and most of the engineers were trained in the old materials and old design patterns, they're finding it difficult to make the jump. So many of them, I think, you know, if you're five years away from retirement, do you learn a new trick or do you just hunker down and hold your breath until the five-year period is up? A lot of them has to do with generation. The kids coming out of MEM programs, which is management and engineering combined, and the engineers that are coming out now, mechanical engineers, they're all getting a full dosage of this and their mind is twisted to this new view. I went to an event, just to give you an idea, which was run by one of the major consulting firms, very prestigious firm. And they brought us to a factory and they were teaching us about how digital strategy could improve the production line. So they went through all this stuff and they figured out that they could take two heads out of the production line. I just happened to be there with Rick Follop, who I'd met before, the CEO of Desktop Metal, and with a fellow named Alan Amling, who at that time was the head of 3D printing for UPS. And before that, he'd run the whole company at some point as like a COO. We went through and said, well, what could we change without doing digital? And just by redesigning the product, we took out six people. And we explained that to them, and the people in the consulting firm got really upset. They took out two heads with their supposed genius moves, and Rick Fallop and Alan and I came up with combining parts so that there was less done in assembly and more done in printing. So there were lots of adjacent parts that were made from the same materials that could be just printed all as one unit, and then your assembly goes away. Just point out another fact of 3D printing is that once it's widely spread out and wildly adopted and used for experimentation, it's going to eliminate assembly lines because all products will be made in the 3D printer with different materials. And the machines are already being developed to do that.
0: To print one item out of multiple materials?
1: Yes. And so then you can make, let's say you make one part with two materials in it, you can do that for three or four adjacent parts and no human hand touches it. And then finally, you might do that with a second set of parts with a different material and the human only clicks it together. But instead of having 300 parts, you have 10 for the assembly line. So assembly lines no longer matter. And what does that do when you don't need low-cost assembly line labor? It shifts the balance of power back to the West, away from the Asian competitors relying on lots of low-cost labor on an assembly line. And so this changes the economic balance of power.
0: And we'll see what happens when that happens. Yeah, Yeah. that's interesting. Yeah, the macroeconomic implications. Talk about the investment implications. How will Wall Street be impacted by the adoption of 3D printing?
1: Oh, well, that depends on what kind of thing you're talking about. As an investment in new companies, we're going through that bubble where you can charge and issue your stock in an IPO with some kind of crazy numbers. Desktop Metal had, at the time of its IPO, had something in the order of, I think, 50 million in revenues, but had a valuation that went up as much as 7 billion and then fell down to 2 billion with 50 million. And so there's some kind of magic pixie dust that happens for making money on these initial offerings. So that's one thing. Another place will be traditional stocks. The people who adopt 3D printing are going to first grab off probably the high end of the market there's going to be hyper-competition in some industries, and the industry leaders are going to be slow to adopt it. And that will end up, in some cases, with dethronement of the king. So there's going to be another wave of cases where those companies break up and try to make something work with old equipment. In some ways, they can do this. It's, you know, Clay Christensen's Innovator's Dilemma talks about the old product trying to improve itself, but it's its last gasps. Because the 3D printing rivals, which will be midsize and very fluid, will surround the company with lots of products and then squeeze them and squeeze them down a little bit at a time until they attack the core of the company. And all of those actions were a set of sequences, temporary
0: advantages
1: that got them to do a major attack.
0: I guess what I'm kind of hearing is these 3D printing companies become the manufacturers for brands, they take on more and more of the value chain and they start then cutting into the value and maybe then they become the brands or they launch their brands or the brands capture less of the profit pool or something like that?
1: Yeah, exactly. And it becomes a sequence which surrounds and crushes like a boa constrictor around the industry leader. And we watched that happen time and time again where industry leaders were rocked to their core and they had to fight their way back, including companies like Microsoft. Microsoft. If they didn't move to the next level, then even Microsoft was being picked away at.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. All right, so then let's say uh, manufacturing becomes something that we can easily do. We don't require a lot of specialized equipment or skills. We could print a car part and then print you know, something completely different. You know, satellite parts. Satellite parts. What about the other advantages? You know, the technical know-how, the design expertise, the selling or client relationship are those capabilities that the incumbents can hold on to? Well, it depends on who you mean by incumbents.
1: The incumbents in the 3D printing world That is an advantage that just keeps molding itself and changing. We did well in ball bearings. It's not working. We fell behind. We switched to bicycles, things like that. It's a ways off before we get this full kind of flexibility built in, but there's nothing stopping it right now. There's no law of science that would interfere with that. And so those folks are perfectly in tune with the idea that if you do something and you drive everybody else crazy, that you can jump somewhere else. You can make unusual combinations. You have some people that make certain electronics and you stuff them into your bicycle or your treadmill or your mirror in the living room, or whatever. Now, the other kind of incumbent is the incumbent at the top of the heap in the industry, you know, like a Ford and GM. My guess is they've got so much fixed costs, you know, I mean, they'd be writing off millions and millions of dollars worth of equipment if they did that. So nobody's going to want to take the gas pipe on that one as a CEO. The only way that they would be able to make a radical change is if they went private. But those companies are monsters. They're too big. But you can go private, do all the stuff you need to, and then put it back out in the marketplace without getting fired. Now, there may be some that end up buying 3D printing capabilities to pass throughout their organization, but nobody's really doing that yet. But the industry is preparing for that. There's a lot of industry 3D printing platforms coming out, each with kind of different functionalities that you'd be able to buy and use in your company and then gradually add more and more machines to it and more and more flexibility to the system and and so forth.
0: Yep, that makes sense. I can see a lot of those other kind of advantages are more transferable. I think nobody thought that Elon Musk could learn how to make a car, could learn to make a rocket ship, but he could just hire great people. You know, I remember when I was at Columbia Business School and one of our professors, Bruce Greenwald, you know, he would look at companies and what's sustainable. And he'd say, don't tell me your capabilities are created a sustainable advantage. You can just hire people away and hire the expertise.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: What time period did you go to Columbia? I graduated in 1999. So it's 97 to 99. Oh,
1: So you're a young whippersnapper. Uh, I graduated in 1987, I think. Gotcha. Yeah, it was 1987. Gotcha. But I left in 1986 because I already had a job. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. I was long gone by the time you got there. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) This is fascinating. We are reaching the top of the times. I'd love to know, if we step back, a strategist advising their company, influencing their leadership to focus on the right things now, what would you advise that they need to focus on now as the next shift in strategy?
1: I think that the incremental adoption of 3D printing is the critical element. Parallel to that is the incremental adoption of artificial intelligence built into all sorts of functions within your company. Those are things that will take the traditional companies and help make them change. Now, how much of that will happen? Will they be on the cutting edge? My guess is zero amongst the big leaders. They may experiment with it in the basement, but it's not going to see the light of day because of the giant politics. I mean, just take a look at GM with the electric car. They just recently came out with an electric car. Did you know who was the first company that developed electric cars and built a full functioning supply chain to be able to ramp up on it in the 1990s? No. With General Motors. Huh. The EV1. And they decided, because of the politics of the organization, not to fund it. And they needed a billion dollars to make it work. But this was the 1990s, and they could have been two decades ahead. And why did they decide to not fund it? Because they wanted to spend the money on Oldsmobile, Mm -hmm. a
0: giant toilet flushing sound. (laughs) 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 Gotcha. Yeah. How can people find you or follow you and learn from you? Certainly your books, which we'll mention, you know, in the notes here, I highly, highly recommend, but where can people find you?
1: They can just call me at Dartmouth.
0: Okay. Yeah. Okay. Just call me at Dartmouth. Great.
1: They just go to the switchboard and ask for me. And if they don't get me, then I run faster than they can. <laughs> 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 just joking. Uh, but my office phone there is 603-646-2921. They can call me and I'll screen them pretty quickly. Okay. Uh, Okay.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm glad that we passed the screen and we got you here and really appreciate you touching on the most important things for strategies to focus on. Now you've got a real gift at seeing that future and thanks for sharing it with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Ness, our editor, and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of OutThinkers.